Hey y'all, welcome to the Love Sick Scribe podcast for this week. And I am doing a blog post with this, it's going to correlate, but I wanted to do the recording a little earlier before I wrote that because I had so much that I wanted to talk about this week in this podcast. And I am going to be talking about something that may be controversial to some people, but it is something that I think is relevant in this time. And what I want to talk about today is the Seven Mountain Mandate. I read a couple of books within the past year or so that were related to this topic, that were in favor of this topic. One of the books I read was Invading Babylon by Bill Johnson and Lance Wallnow, which I think had other contributors, if I'm not mistaken. And forgive me, it's been a while since I've read that book. But the other book that I want to focus on today that I had a physical copy of in my hands is the book called The Seven Mountain Prophecy, Unveiling the Coming Elijah Revolution by Johnny Inlow. And I took time to read through it, and I highlighted to give you an overview of what this book is stating and to really help to encourage you when you're reading books, no matter who writes them, but in this case, with books like this that are containing presumed extra-biblical revelation that is said to be from the Lord, that you open your Bible, you test it, and make sure that what you are reading and consuming is lining up with Scripture. It needs to not contradict Scripture. It needs to be confirmed by Scripture. So... We're going to talk about the Seven Mountain Mandate today. Now, just to give you a very brief history of the Seven Mountain Mandate, you may be wondering how it came to be. Originally, this was not laid out by the people that I just listed. This actually came about, I believe, in 1975 by two men, Bill Bright from Campus Crusade and Lauren Cunningham, who was the founder of Youth with a Mission. They came together and they agreed upon this mandate, this vision, that essentially the church was to take on these spheres or mountains or of societal influence. That was the main goal. And they both agreed and said that God gave them this revelation that there were seven of these mountains that were to be conquered or to be addressed and for the church to claim the influence over them in order for the kingdom of God to come forth in the world. So, just as an understanding, when I'm going through this book today, and this is going to be a little bit longer podcast, so stick with me, or you can always stop and then come back to it and divide it up however you want to do it. But the Seven Mountain Mandate is essentially rooted in dominion theology. And this is the base, this is the belief that the church is the one that's supposed to rule over the earth and that Christ cannot come back until the church does what she is supposed to do for him to come back. This is really making man the center and that God is at our mercy in order to do anything, almost as if like he's, his hands are tied and that he can't do anything until we do what we're supposed to do. Which So the seven mountains that we see that are going to be addressed here in this book and what Bill Bright and Lauren Cunningham came up with are these, are the seven pillars of society, however one want to call them. But in this book, they're called the seven mountains. And this is usually how other leaders in these movements, those that are involved in this movement, they, they hold to this, the seven mountain mandate. These are the seven pillars, the seven mountains. It's government, economy, education, family, religion, arts and entertainment, or that's also called celebration sometimes, and media. So let's take a look at Johnny Enlow's book, which was written in 2008, and it's called The Seven Mountain Prophecy. So originally, initially, when I'm looking in the book, I what I've done is I've gone through and I've highlighted some of the things that really stood out to me, 
and going to go through. And as I went through them and saw some some things that were of concern or red flags, I wrote down things and I'm going to share them with you and compare that and test it against scripture and what scripture has to say. So initially on page eight of the book, Johnny begins talking about the seven horns. The seven horns represent seven foundations of power that the lamb has because of his awesome act of redemption on the cross. And that's a direct quote. Now, the problem here is this is not exposited from scripture. Nowhere in scripture are we told that that's what those seven horns mean. This has been eisegetically pulled from scripture. He is reading into the interpretation of scripture what he wants it to say. So that's first and foremost. And so this is something just to recognize the difference between expositional teaching and preaching versus eisegesis, exegesis versus eisegesis. So exegesis is actually interpreting what the passage means, pulling out of it what it actually says. Eisegesis is reading something into the text that's not even there. So that's one issue right there from the very beginning of the book when he's describing the Revelation passage there. He says, quote, Jesus regained authority to establish the rule of God upon the seven pillars of the very cultures or infrastructures of every nation of the earth. Notice right there, I put the words in bold, Jesus regained authority to establish the rule of God upon the seven pillars of the very cultures. Jesus never lost authority. The fact of the matter is, is that we live in a fallen world because of sin. And Adam did not do what he was supposed to do as the first Adam, and he rebelled against God. But Jesus came as the second Adam, all God and all man. And he conquered the devil, he conquered sin, and he made a way for us to be reconciled back to the Father. God is the one that's in control, not man, not us. That's the problem that we're having here, in again, in the Dominion theology, is that we are taking the authority, and we are the ones in charge, and we are the ones that are given all this power. And as we go through here, you're going to see that 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 is continuously that is continuously ingrained into this book. And it's all based on our actions, our abilities, our power, our authority, and really making Jesus almost like a a backseat passenger in all of this. And we got we have to be careful with uh, embracing this type of teaching and this type of doctrine. Because it opens up the doors to present another gospel, is what this is doing. And so it's, it's just not biblically based. Jesus did not lose authority. By quoting and saying that Jesus regained authority implies that he lost it. And he did not lose it. God cannot lose authority. And he does not need our permission to do anything. And if you hear that I'm a little fired up today about this particular podcast, I apologize ahead of time. There are things that really kind of light a fire under me. And this is one of those things. Because when the name of Christ and what God did, what the Father did, what Jesus Christ did, the work that the Holy Spirit does in us as believers, when that is being diminished or seemingly belittled in any way and devalued, it rubs me the wrong way, personally. And so I I want to apologize ahead of time for probably at, at some points being a little frustrated with this teaching, but it's something that needs to be talked about. And we already talked about the seven pillars of society that we laid out, the seven mountains. And we'll talk about how Johnny's book relates the seven mountains to the particular passage in Deuteronomy 7 that he is going to refer to in order to tie in the Bible. And again, eisegesis and his perception and his prophetic 
illumination, if you will, of how these seven mountains relate to the scripture, which again is not found in scripture. And at the end, though, I will show you something in scripture that's a little troubling, that there are seven mountains that are listed, but they're not how you think. So let's continue on. The next quote I want to address is this one. Quote, the lamb was slain, making the ultimate sacrifice to enable us to disciple or instruct the nations in these seven foundations of culture so that we would in turn deliver them to him, thus fulfilling Revelation eleven fifteen. Again, I want you to notice something here. This is making it clear here. Yes, the lamb was slain. There are some truths that are sprinkled into this. But listen, the lamb was slain. Yes, he was. Making the ultimate sacrifice. Yep. To enable us to disciple or instruct the nations in these seven foundations of culture. Er, Slam on the brakes there just for a second. We're not told to take over culture. And it's not the purpose is not so that we would in turn deliver them to him. You see, this is again making God at our mercy. In order for Jesus to do anything, in order for him to come back, that he is dependent on us. And again, this makes it very man-centered. It is putting a dependency on us. And we should know by now as human beings, we are not trustworthy or dependable (laughs) of our own accord. We are not. This is the reason why we need a Savior. This is why we need Jesus Christ, because we cannot be trusted in and of our own devices. We cannot be trusted in and of ourselves. So this is, this is leaving Jesus at the mercy of the church. And we do not deliver the nations to, to Christ. He is not dependent upon us and our works to return. And we can see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 24. It says, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. And we can see in the context of 1 Corinthians 15 that Paul lays out the gospel and then he goes in and talks about the resurrection that comes through Jesus Christ, the resurrection of the dead, that he is laying out the end of what's supposed to happen. And here in 1 Corinthians 15, 24, he is doing that. Then comes the end when he, who is he? It is not the church. It is Christ. He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So we are not in here doing this. This is Christ. So this should be a red flag to us right here. When someone says we deliver the nations over to Christ, no, we don't. That's not what scripture tells us at all. Where are we told to conquer the seven mountains of influence and then give them to Jesus so that he can return? This seems to make it more man-centered, as I said, than Christ-centered. On page 23 of this book, John Anlow says, quote, We know John the Baptist's revolution didn't go far enough because it brought repentance, but not a restoration of all things. Now, let's think about this statement for just a minute. That he is saying that, We know that John the Baptist's revolution didn't go far enough because it brought repentance, but not a restoration of all things. Well, we know from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, which is mentioned in a few of the Gospels, that John prepared the way for Christ. He was prophesied beforehand by the prophet Isaiah that he would prepare the way for the Lord. John prepared the way. Christ came. John brought the message of repentance, which essentially that's what all the Old Testament prophets were bringing to the people of Israel, telling them to turn back to God. And John was the last Old Testament prophet, and he was bringing the message of repentance. We are never told in Scripture that John's goal and his purpose was to restore all things. There is no man on this planet that has ever been born except for Jesus Christ, who was all God and all man. Only Christ can do that. 
And he goes on to say in his book, quote, his and Jesus's deaths, however, became the seeds for the coming restoration of all things that will precede Jesus's return. So again, another question I have, where is this in scripture? This is a really good question to ask, not in an arrogant way or a puffed up way, because there's times that I'll ask things and honestly, I don't know where it is in scripture. And there's times that I'll read things in books and I immediately go, I know enough to know that that's not in scripture. And I'll make a note going, where is this in scripture? Asking the question, why is this person saying this? Because this is not biblically based. And this is one of those things. Where is this in scripture? John's death has nothing to do with restoration of things to come. No other person could restore all things but God. And he did it through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, showing us the promise of resurrection from the dead for those who are in Christ Jesus. And something else to take note of, it's almost, and I don't want to say that this is what he means by it, but it it kind of seems this way when I read it, when he says, because he brought repentance. His revolution didn't go far enough because he just brought repentance, but it didn't restore all things. But Jesus continued the message of repentance. I mean, we can see these in the Gospels that it says that Jesus said what John said. He continued on with this and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We're going to talk about the kingdom in just a minute. But just to kind of set this up for you in the introduction, there's a lot of stuff in the introduction I'm not going to go through. And the seven mountains are going to be fairly quick and summarized. But I need to lay the groundwork for this so you kind of know what's going on in this book before you get to the seven mountains. In another section in the beginning of the book, he also references Matthew chapter 22, verse 44. And he takes the liberty to quote God in this book, speaking um, to the Son regarding this. I want to take just a minute to read this to you so you can see this, because there's actually quotations around this, and this is implying that God the Father said this to the Son. First of all, Matthew 22, verse 44 says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So this is the quote that he's, or the scripture that he's using to talk about the until factor. And he goes on to say in this particular section, he says, This passage is intended to shape our eschatology. Together with Acts 3, it gives us critical information about God's timing, the until factor. In essence, the Father says to the Son, quote, Once you have purchased redemption for mankind, you will sit at my right hand. You will have done your part on earth till I make your enemies your footstool. You will remain up here as the head, and your body on earth will crush your enemies. The last generation will be the foot generation and will rule on earth over your enemies. Until they do so, you are not going back to rescue, rapture, save, or anything else. Your body, in fact, will not be a beautiful bride until she has accomplished this crushing of Satan. Folks, this is not in scripture. Jesus conquered the devil. He conquered Satan. He conquered the grave. He conquered death. He conquered sin. And the only way that we, you and I, will have victory over the bondages and the slavery of sin is through receiving salvation, through repentance, through our Savior in Jesus Christ. By us repenting and receiving and confessing Him as our Lord and Savior and His atonement for our sins, it is the cross, the work on the cross that Jesus Christ did. It is the finished work of God Himself. That is what's saving and that's what crushes the enemy. And to, again, to devalue what Christ did is to basically demean him down to just a mere man and that we have all the authority and the power now when Matthew 28 says that Jesus was given all authority, not us. Christ was given the authority and he instructs 
his body, which is a metaphor that's used in the New Testament, not in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, it is a metaphor for us to understand that we are in Christ. This is to help us to know that we are in Christ and that we are a new creation and that we are in him and that we have no power in and of ourselves over sin. That's where the the, the victory is over. It's not over our enemies or anything like that. The in, ultimate enemy is sin because that's the ultimate enemy of God. That is the ultimate enemy. And so reading this right here, he's taking the liberty to quote God for one thing in this book, speaking to the son, and it's in quotations. But to put something in quotations and to imply that God the Father said this to the Son is not right. In this same section, this is another very startling thing. And if you know your scripture, you're going to immediately hear this quote and you're going to know that something is off. He says, quote, we are going, we, meaning the church, we are going to take on the false prophet and the beast and we are going to annihilate both of them. When they are crushed, we will come to the Lord and say, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God. We will present the nations of the world to the Lord of his possessions. If the we is bothering you, I am so sorry. I want to highlight that to draw attention to that because it's, again, putting a focus on us and that we have all the power and the authority and the ability when it's not. And if you know your scripture, you know that it is not the church that judges and condemns for eternal punishment the Antichrist and the false prophet. It is Jesus. It says it in Revelation. It says that he throws them into the eternal lake of fire, and they are not annihilated. Not like this says in his book, that we are going to take on the false prophet and the beast, and we're going to annihilate both of them. No, we're not. No, they're not going to be annihilated. They're going to be alive. It says in the scripture that he throws them alive into the lake of fire, and they are eternally tormented and punished there. That's what scripture says. This is why it is so important, and I am so passionate about this, is that we have got to get back to the written word of God. We do not know the Bible, and I'm including myself in that. When I say we, it's a collective. We do not know scripture like we should. And then when someone writes a book, and they have a big following, and they are able to have have great weight in the church, in areas of the church, and to write such things and to say that it is prophetic illumination, it is revelation from God, and this is what it says, and it blatantly contradicts scripture, and we don't know scripture enough to recognize that it's not lining up and to say, this is a problem. God is not going to contradict his word. The Holy Spirit is not going to contradict his word. God is not a man that he should lie. We cannot be afraid to say, we want nothing to do with these teachings. This is not lining up with scripture. We are going back to the word of God because we want to know what it says in context. That is not mean-spirited. It is not being ugly. We are told to test everything. And especially if someone is coming to you as a teacher or a minister and they are publicly writing stuff like this, this is to be addressed publicly and to say, this is error. This is absolute error. And it's dangerous because then we're, we're demeaning and devaluing God. And then we're making ourselves God and we don't even realize it. 
we're putting ourselves in a place of where God is supposed to be. And we're saying God is dependent upon us and he can't do anything until we do what we're supposed to do. And then we put bondages on people in these churches like this. We put spiritual bondages on them. And this is one of those that if you're not doing enough and you're not taking on the mountain that you're supposed to as an apostle or prophet or teacher or pastor and evangelist or worship leader or whatever you are, and you're not claiming that mountain, then you're, ho- you're holding up Christ coming back. Do you see how much bondage that is? Do you see how much, how that shackles people? And they don't really understand the gospel. They don't really understand who Jesus is. Jesus is not this minuscule deity that is bowing to our whim and is dependent upon us. Oh, goodness gracious. I am so sorry, guys. I apologize again and again. But this is, this is really concerning to me. This is why I don't want to say this in a condemning way. If anything, that is the biggest thing that, that really grieves me and bothers me is that it's elevating man and it's devaluing Christ and it's not honoring Christ and it's not preaching the gospel. And I'm actually going to talk about that in just a minute because he talks about the gospel of the kingdom and he separates that from salvation. And I, it seems like a disconnect if I'm understanding what he's saying in this book appropriately, but it seems like a disconnect because those two are not separate entities, all right? People will use Luke 19 verse 13 and say we are to occupy until he comes. But this does not mean to take control as in a military sense. Rather, the Greek word there in occupy means to busy oneself with or to be engaged with business. We are to be preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be engaged in the business of ministry, of reconciliation, that can only be found in preaching Christ and him crucified. We are also told that in the last days, the world will grow worse, not better. This is one of the things that you'll see in the post-millennial aspects or views of post-millennialism. But those that hold to dominion theology in this sense of us having dominion rather than Christ having dominion, there's this this belief that the world's just going to get better and better and better before Christ comes back. And if we look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 and 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, we find that the world really doesn't get better. It gets worse uh, because people are growing, their hearts are getting cold. They're doing things that are not honoring God. They have a form of godliness, but they deny, deny the power. And that's misconstrued at times with that particular scripture because people will say, well, if you don't have miracle signs and wonders, then you have a form of godliness, but you're denying the power. But if you're saved, you're saved by grace through faith in Christ, and you know that you're a new creation in Christ, and the old things have passed away, and behold, the new has come. And, of course, we live in a now and a not yet, as you've heard me say before, that we don't have our glorified bodies yet. But we have the eternal promise to come, but we are still being sanctified uh, by the Holy Spirit to be conformed to the image of Christ while we're in this world. And that we are free from the, the bondages and the shackles of sin when we are believers in Christ. And so we've been empowered by Christ through the Holy Spirit to overcome sin. It doesn't mean that we're not going to sin in this life, but we are endued with power from the Holy Spirit to know how to overcome sin and to not be slaves to sin, but slaves to God. So I hope that that helps helps somebody because you don't need to be enslaved to these types of teachings and beliefs that it's all based on your works because you will never be able to do enough. If it's based on what you have to do and and that Christ is dependent on you and I to come back, it's not good enough. It's never going to be good enough. And that type of God is not a God I want to worship. That is not a God that exists. Jesus Christ is the same today 
yesterday, today, and forever. And he is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he doesn't need me. He doesn't depend on me. And he doesn't, uh, he's not being held up in the heavens because of me (laughs) or you. The Father is the one that will send Jesus Christ. But he's not dependent on on us doing and fulfilling things and doing a works-based system. So let's get to the nitty-gritty of this, shall we? So the main teaching of this is Deuteronomy 7, chapter 7, verse 1. This is what Mr. Enloe bases his entire seven mountain prophecy on is this one particular scripture. And it says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast our many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. So he has found this in this book and use this as the basis for his teaching that he's going to present as this prophecy of the seven mountain mandate. Now, we can know from reading Deuteronomy 7 that it is stated in Scripture that it is God who delivers the nations to the Israelites and inflicting defeat upon them. It is not the Israelites that defeat them, but God defeats them. I believe that's in verse 23 in, in Deuteronomy 7. So God is the one who defeats the enemies of the Israelites. And again, this is a type and shadow. This is helping us to see it is not by our own ability. It is not by our own strength or our own might, but it's by God. It's it's his doing. It's his work. He is the one that defeats the enemies. He is the one that defeats sin. He is the one that defeats Satan. He is the one that sets us free and sets the captive free. He is the one that delivers us. What do we need to be delivered from? From the bondages of sin, from the slavery of sin that, and that ensnares us and shackles us and separates us from the love of God, that separates us from being with God. These are the things that we need to understand. And Deuteronomy 7 is not about us. <laughs> it is a type and shadow. It's firstly a historical account of the Israelites going into the promised land. And secondly, it's a type and shadow. The promised land is you can, I guess you can equate it to eternal life and the Israelites are God's people and that God is defeating the enemies of God's people in order for them to be able to go to the promised land. Here's a big thing I wanted to talk about. I mentioned a minute ago that he made a distinction between the gospel of salvation and the gospel of the kingdom, which does not seem to be made in scripture. And so in, on page 41 of his book, it says the gospel of saving souls will not suffice. It is the gospel of the kingdom that must get out. And he also speaks of us all being judged as a nation rather than individually stating, quote, this is by my God's design so that you'll live in the gospel of the kingdom instead of just the gospel of salvation. But I want you to see something here. When you look at scripture and when you even do a study on what the gospel of the kingdom is, you're going to find something very interesting in that the gospel of the kingdom was used repeatedly in connection with the Lord Jesus Christ and his work on earth. The word gospel means good news. And the term translated kingdom in the Greek means the realm in which a sovereign king rules. So we're seeing here that Jesus Christ, the king of kings, is coming as the euangelion. He is a messenger. He's bringing the good news. He's bringing that there's victory. There is victory. And he's the only one that can bring the victory through his death, burial, and resurrection. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news. That he is the lamb. He is the good shepherd that dies for his sheep. He's the one that leads us and uh, that brings eternal life when we believe on him and that we repent of our sins. We trust in him and have faith in him. Faith in him. 
cannot say that enough. So he makes this distinction here, but when you look in Scripture, there is no distinction because the gospel of the kingdom involves coming to repentance and salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. The King of Kings who rules and reigns and is the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead, and he restores all things, including the renewal of creation. We can find this in John chapter 18, verse 36, Romans chapter 8, verse 18 through 30, Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, also in Romans chapter 13. In 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3, 4, 20, and through 24. And so we can see in passages in Luke and Mark and in even in Romans 14, 17 of what the gospel, the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom is. It's based in Christ. You cannot separate salvation from the gospel of the kingdom. How will you get into the kingdom without salvation? They are intertwined. That is the essence of of it with Christ is salvation. To go on before we get to the the actual seven mountains, there's also a concerning mention when referencing Romans chapter 8 verse 21 and creation. And he states, why would God care about something that doesn't have a soul? Because the rest of his creation still carries enough of his DNA to look to him for deliverance and redemption, end quote. So when I read this, I kept reading it and rereading it, and it just eerily sounded like an allusion to pantheism. This belief that, in case you don't know what pantheism is, pantheism is this belief that God is in everything. That he's in the leaves, he's in the trees, he's in the blade of grass, he's in the insects, he's in everything. And just couldn't get away from this. I mean, creation, yes, it groans for the redemption, for the revealing of the sons of God. Again, that is not focused on us. That's focused on Christ because of his return. And looking at this particular passage in Romans 8, 21, he references and then saying, you know, that creation still carries enough of his DNA to look for for deliverance and redemption. It does sound like pantheism. He goes on to say that God is an environmentalist. So if God is an environmentalist, help me understand something here. Can can someone explain the occurrences written in Revelation when the wrath of God is poured out on the earth and it's burned up? And the seas turn into blood and the animals die in the ocean and the, there's animals dying and there's people there. I mean, creation itself is getting destroyed in Revelation. But yet we're seeing that he's saying here that God is an environmentalist. You see the contradiction again. I don't want to say this in a mean spirited way, but I do want to get you thinking when you're reading books that are outside the Bible. So now you may be wondering, OK, if you haven't read this book, then what are the seven mountains and how are they tied to De- Deuteronomy 7 in this book? So the first mountain that he talks about in this book, which, by the way, when you read this book, each chapter is essentially broken down into pretty much the same sections. So each mountain is assigned an ite, an I-T-E. So in the ones that are Deuteronomy 7 that are, that are mentioned, they're each assigned an ite, and a section is written. So it talks about what is, for example, what is the, what is media? So for the first mountain, it's the Hittites and the media. So he'll talk about, you know, what is media? Who is the king over the media? Who is the demonic principality, basically, that's ruling over this media mountain? What are the roles, such as what is the role of the evangelist? The evangelist is the one that's going to play a big role in this first mountain with the the media mountain is the evangelist. What is the role of the evangelist? He talks about the levels of this mountain. Um, In a lot of the chapters, he goes in almost every one of the chapters, he talks about the multi-pronged approach to this mountain. He talks about prayer strategies. He talks about action strategies. So this kind of helps you to see how each chapter is laid out in this book that helps you to know the, the format of how he addresses and 
and tackles each one of these mountains. The first mountain is the Hittites and Media. Now, again, this is eisegetical interpretation. This is not in Scripture. Nowhere in Scripture are we told that we are to conquer seven mountains, nor are we ever told in Scripture that these seven nations that were greater were attributed to the seven mountains of influence. This is eisegesis. This is someone reading into the text of the passage that's something that is not there. They're saying, and a lot of times you'll see this in his book, he'll say, I feel that this is the, the demon that's over this. I believe there's no biblical concrete information to support this. Now, as a side note, people are going to say, well, do you not believe in the principalities that can oversee certain territories? You know, Daniel in chapter 10, I believe, is you know, some people will use that scripture to say, well, there was a prince of Persia and the angel was trying to get to Daniel and he had trouble. Then Michael came and helped that angel so he could get through and deliver a revelation to Daniel. Yes, there's scripture that looks that it appears that in that particular passage that there are potential for demonic entities that are trying to inhibit what God wants to do. This, however, does not mean that we create a doctrine that every place in the in the world has a principality over it or every local church as what he says in this book every church has a principality over it and we have to determine what that is in order to have freedom this is exhausting why can we not just get back to scripture and resting and trusting in the lord for the work that he did and getting back to understanding what the bible says about things so that we can know how to be followers of christ that are operating in a way that we are honoring the gospel. That's what we need to be concerned with and preaching the gospel and telling people about the wrath of God that abides on them if they don't know him as their Lord and Savior and telling them that there is redemption, reconciliation, and restoration in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And getting back to what scripture says, when you don't understand the word in context, you're not going to understand what true spiritual warfare is. You're not going to understand what your role is as a believer. You're going to fall for these false teachings, these myths. You're going to wander off into myths, and you're going to be chasing things that are not found in Scripture, and you're going to believe, and you're going to, you're going to have a haughty attitude about yourself and believe things that just aren't true. And you're going to have a prideful mentality and think, well, you know, Jesus, I have all the authority and power because I'm a believer, bless God, and Jesus can't do anything until I do da-da-da-da-da. And we can love the Lord and still have a wrong attitude, still not have proper understanding and not realize that the things that we're believing are false, that they're wrong and they're not honoring Christ and they're not leading us back to the truth that is ultimately rooted in his word. That is the basis and the foundation of where we find truth. We don't need to try to search for it anywhere else. We can glean from other people that have that spent time in understanding the word and glean from them and, and learn from them and grow from them. Ultimately, we are to go back to Scripture. And we are to understand that Scripture interprets Scripture and that we are also responsible as believers for getting into the Word for ourselves daily and spending time in His Word. That is one of the best ways you're going to cultivate intimacy with God. It's not in a goosebump. It's not in an experience, an encounter. And I'm not diminishing that by in any way. We can, we're going to experience things in God, and I understand that. At the same time, people are going to chase experiences and they're going to base their relationship with Christ on how many experiences they've had. And you could be experiencing something that is not of God. That's why you need to be in the word every day and make sure that if you're having 
experiences that they're aligning with scripture. So we'll move on and actually talk about this first mountain and get off these rabbit trails if we can, which is not your fault, it's mine. But this first mountain, the Hittites and the media, Mr. Inlow says that the media creates fear and terror and is ruled by Apollyon, or he speculates that it is Apollyon who is occupying the media mountain. He says that God is raising up a new breed of evangelists to take this mountain. He talks of releasing power by going to geographical strongholds, such as Atlanta and New York City, performing prophetic acts. He says that casting down this principality in the strongholds would be a global breakthrough and that one needs to act within his or her bounds of faith and direction from God. So that's a summation. Obviously, this chapter is not just a paragraph when you read it, but this is a good summation of the first mountain with the Hittites and the first mountain, which is media. The second mountain that he addresses is the second group of people, the Girgashites in Deuteronomy 7. And this mountain that he uh, identifies is the mountain of government. Now, he says that Lucifer is at the top of this mountain where he functions as the Antichrist. So, When I read that, it was interesting because there seems to be a heavy focus on apostles in this chapter as being some of the greater gifts that God gives us. And if you're familiar with the belief that there is a group called the New Apostolic Reformation or a movement of it, uh, not necessarily a group because it's hard to pin it down, but with the movement of and the belief and the teaching that the apostles and prophets hold a uh, governing authority in the church and that the churches that are not submitted to them and their governing authority and receiving the revelation are not part, essentially, of the body or that they're missing out. But there's a heavy influence or focus here in the second mountain on government and the apostles are assigned to ascend this mountain of government. In page, on page 66 of his book, he says, quote, Before we can fully displace powers and principalities, Apostles will have to be properly positioned on top of the mountains. Again, an apostle is someone who has been given authority to displace top-of-the-mountain demons and bring the reign of heaven in their place. We will not fully take the mountain of government without this gift in place. The apostle gift is specifically a government gift, whether inside or outside of the church. One reason we haven't advanced as far as expected in this area is that Christians who have come into power in various national governments haven't always been apostolic Christians. Now, what is confusing to me here is that he mentions the scripture in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, and the Lord's house will be established on top of the mountain. But this entire passage is referring to the millennial reign of Christ. So why is there a focus on apostles being the savior, so to speak, and establishing themselves on the top of the mountain? This is a part of the New Apostolic Reformation, a heavy focus on apostles and prophets being authoritative in the church. The third mountain that we come to in this book is the, are the Amorites, and the mountain associated with the Amorites is education. And Johnny Enlow believes that the principality of this mountain is Beelzebub, stating that he is a chief lieutenant of Satan, though he could be just another face of Satan or Satan himself. I found that a little bit interesting and confusing that he's assigning Satan to a few different places here on different mountains, but there it's, there's a huge focus on the demonic realm here. And again, it seems to be diminishing the gospel. Again, that's just my perception that it's the diminishing of the gospel, elevating demonic spiritual warfare. The the, uh, seven mountain mandate is part of spiritual warfare in the the apostolic uh, system here, by the way, this is, this is a part of the spiritual warfare. And in this chapter, he speaks of left brain and right brain issues with regards to kingdom thinking. And this, this is something that he stated that, again, was another red flag to me. And it was almost 
as if discouraging people from thinking and using their mind. Okay, he says, quote, left brain thinking, when it becomes dominant, squeezes out the things of the Spirit of God. The right brain isn't the kingdom of God, but it's the part of the brain God has created to be open to respond to his way. You can quote all the scriptures on faith and understand the logic of faith, but only the right brain can tap into the substance of faith. All the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, etc., are all accessed only through the right brain. Again, Galatians 5, chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 19 and 20 does not tell us any of this. If someone can find it in Galatians 5, please feel free to, to email it to me or send it to me through social media. But I cannot find it anywhere in Galatians 5 where it says that the fruit of the Spirit comes from the right side of the brain. Now, Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 says that we are told, Jesus says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. The mind is not a wicked thing. It can think wicked things, but we are told in Scripture more than once to love the Lord with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. So why are we telling people that if the certain side of their brain is, is more dominant, that that part is what squeezes out the Spirit of God? How puny is this Spirit of God that my mind can squeeze him out? My mind is not what receives the fruit of the Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit dwelling within me and yielding to maturity by the Holy Spirit being conformed to the image of Christ and bearing fruit that in keeping with repentance. And that bearing fruit is the fruit of the Holy Spirit to indicate that there is a change that has taken place in me that only God himself could do. So this is not biblically based. The word even says, come and let us reason. You see, we are not to abandon critical thinking. We do not receive faith from our brain. We do not receive the fruits of the Spirit through our brain. Our faith is in Jesus Christ, that he has saved us from our sins and reconciled us back to the God the Father. The fruits of the Spirit are cultivated in the life of a believer through a right relationship with God, being indwelt by the Spirit of God, and maturing in our walk with God. This is a way to shut down questioning and biblical reasoning and testing of doctrine contrary to Scripture. This, when I read this, this is what it made me think of. This is automatically a way of saying, you're thinking, you're trying to reason, and that's not right. Because if you're trying to reason and you're trying to do that, you're just not thinking, you're not letting the Spirit have his way. And this is just not rude in Scripture. I'm sorry. It's just not. So the fourth mountain we see are the Canaanites. And the mountain assigned to them is the mountain of economy. By the way, let me back up. The third mountain, the teachers, are the ones that are going to help ascend the mountain of education. The fourth mountain, the Canaanites, uh, the mountain is economy. And these are where the prophets come in. So he believes this mountain is ruled by Mammon or Babylon. He misappropriates scripture several times in this chapter. For example, uh, the passages that deal with Joseph and Egypt's wealth ties together Haggai verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 6 through 9 with Hebrews chapter 12, verses 25 through 29 uh, to talk about wealth. And he says that prophets are to take over this mountain. So there was, a, there was several passages of scripture that seem to be tied to wealth here and to the economy that didn't seem to fit. The fifth mountain is the Perizzites, and the Perizzites, the mountain affiliated, is religion. So you can probably guess what spirit sits on this mountain. It's the religious spirit. So he goes on this book here, and these were, again, some other areas that were troubling. He states, quote, Our last religious enemy will be more difficult to discern. 
that which has come onto the mountain of religion calling itself Christian. Just as Jesus faced the greatest persecution from the very ones who were supposedly looking for the Messiah, so too will the advancing church face its greatest challenge from those who profess Jesus. These will be the final, quote, holy people to be completely shattered. They will not be our enemies, but we will be their enemies. So I want you to take note here, just first off, Jesus faced the greatest persecution from the very ones who were supposedly looking for the Messiah. Um, they rejected Jesus because they were seeking an earthly king for one thing, and they were fulfilling scripture. So those are the two reasons. And, and third of all, we're not Jesus. So those are just some things to take into consideration. And then furthermore, true brothers and sisters in Christ are not going to consider themselves enemies. Now, we do know that there are wolves that are clothed in sheep's clothing are infiltrating the church. And we are to call out false teaching and to identify it for the sake of the sheep. So that way people are not wandering off and they're not going and following false doctrine and believing another gospel. But true brothers and sisters in Christ will not look at themselves as enemies. They, they in correction and disagreement, um, questions among each other, will not be disparaged. We, that people will not be threatened by that when what they're saying or what they're teaching is being questioned. If you have a conversation with somebody and they don't want to listen and they're constantly, they feel threatened because you're questioning them and they said they're a believer in Christ, doesn't mean they have a devil. There's a pride issue there that we know that there's a lot of works of the flesh going on. We need to realize that brothers and sisters in Christ are not enemies. To make such a statement again, it, it kind of reminded me and took me back to a book I had read a long time ago called The Final Quest by Rick Joyner, which I've heard a lot of people rave about that book. That book was disturbing to me quite frankly, because it mentioned about the grays and the blues and the civil war between Christians, and it seemed to elevate him in this book, and that people were bowing down to him and honoring him in heaven, and he's talking to dead people, that people that have passed on, and he's having this, it's, bit, it's rather disturbing, and it just, it did not seem to align with scripture either when you go through it. But some of the things that he talks about in this particular chapter, he talks about the central role of the Holy Spirit. I want to read a little bit of passages to you. He says, quote, I mentioned that the religious spirit thrives in the absence of true biblical, powerful Christianity. When we model a Christianity that does not carry power, presence, and passion, then we're demonstrating a product that's so inferior that cheap counterfeits can thrive. Well, the last time I checked that Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation, first for the Jew and then the Gentile. The power is in the, the gospel of salvation. It is not merely in signs and wonders and miracles. And we know in scripture that signs and wonders and miracles are not a true confirmation that it is from God. That we know that in the end times that there will be false signs and wonders that will be done to deceive even the elect. So just because someone does signs and wonders and they say they have power does not mean that it's from God. We are to test those things and to make sure that we're not being deceived and not following something that is not of God and that is not testifying of the true gospel of Jesus Christ and it is not aligning with true scripture. The power of God is unto salvation through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We cannot be diminishing the gospel of Jesus Christ and stripping it of its power. And the greatest miracle that takes place is the miracle of salvation of someone being spiritually raised from the dead that is spiritually poor and coming to Christ and receiving the promise of eternal life. That is the greatest miracle that we're ever going to see. And that is supernatural in and of itself because a dead man can do nothing of their own accord. It is through the work and the finished work of Christ on the cross 
that we are able to come to him and to be drawn to him by the Father. He goes on to say that Antichrist can also be translated against the anointing. This Antichrist can ultimately be discerned by its anti-anointing stance. It will be pompous and subtly opposed to all the manifestations of the Holy Spirit's power. Believers who live their lives resisting the anointing will become an unwitting part of the Antichrist resistance, a tool of the anti-anointing. Just to take some notes here, the Greek word for Antichrist means an opposer of Christ. It is found only in John's epistles and is defined to be all who deny that Jesus is the Messiah and that the Messiah is come in the flesh. Again, this seems to be a way to identify a religious spirit not mentioned in Scripture and to demonize professing believers who do not agree on secondary issues such as spiritual gifts. This makes it more about being man-centered and less about God, and it promulgates the idea of the haves and the have-nots. So in our last little bit that we're here talking about this, the sixth mountain is the Hivites, and the, the mountain that's assigned to them is the arts and entertainment. And Johnny says in this book that the Jezebel rules this mountain, and so we're not going to get away from Jezebel here. Um, he talks about the different parts of the arts and media, such as art, fashion, sports, music, movies, all the different aspects of the mountain that the, the people that are to take this mountain are to do. He references uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 20, saying that the scripture calls her a demonic power. But we know when we read chapter, uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 20, that this is not a demon, actually. This is a, it says that woman, Jezebel. Jesus himself says that woman, Jezebel, that you tolerate that woman. So we don't know if this woman was actually named Jezebel or if she was emulating some of the traits of Jezebel from 1 Kings that we saw in the Old Testament. We do know that when someone dies, that the scripture tells us that it is appointed for man to die once and then comes the judgment. So to say that someone has a, quote, Jezebel spirit, and maybe there needs to be an elaboration on this because we hear a lot of this teaching today about the Jezebel spirit and that so-and-so has a Jezebel spirit and this person has a Jezebel spirit and we're assigning demons, first of all, to born-again believers. So that's another topic for another day. But to say that a demon spirit named Jezebel is assigned to people and to attribute it to this woman who was in the Bible who did wicked things and persecuted the Old Testament prophets and then to say that this spirit is now in this woman in Revelation 2.20 really contradicts scripture first of all when we say that a man is appointed to die once and then comes the judgment and to also say that this scripture calls her a demonic power and it never says any such thing. Revelation 19, verse 10, we can see that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So prophecy is testifying of Christ. Now, some people with uh, the gift of prophecy, some of them believe today that that is the, the preaching of the word, the, forth, the forthtelling, not the foretelling, but the forthtelling of the word of God, that whenever we speak the word of God, the written word of God, that we are prophesying. And so some people hold to that belief, while some others, they believe that the gift of prophecy is exhorting and encouraging and consoling others through uh, knowledge that God will give that person. So just to give you a little bit of insight on that, but ultimately prophecy is supposed to point back to Christ and to glorify him. The last mountain that we see is the Jebusites, and this mountain is attributed to family. And he talks about pastors here in this, this chapter, that pastors are going to play a role in the family here 
on this mountain. And he believes that Baal is the one that rules this mountain. On page 173 of this book, he talks about different uh, the important role of pastors. Uh, he talks about women pastors. I won't talk about that today. Marketplace pastors. He talks about government service pastors, judges who are pastors. But the question I have is that pastors are people who oversee sheep in the church, so to speak. People are the, the believers in Christ are attributed as sheep. So how can there be marketplace pastors? That doesn't make any sense. Even apostles at times, and it's not just this book, but other teachings, there, there's a teaching that there are many different types of apostles. There's vertical apostles, horizontal apostles, there's marketplace apostles, there's all kinds of different apostles. But this, when we look in scripture, that wasn't the case. That There were different types of apostles in the sense that they were within the church, but there were apostles of Christ that were called by Christ himself and had the authority to write scripture, to lay out the, the foundation for the gospel in the New Testament, that were able to work miracle signs and wonders, to validate their ministry, that uh, had witnessed the resurrection, as we talked about a few weeks ago. And then there were apostles of the church that were like Barnabas and Janaeus and others that were appointed by the church in order to be sent out and to establish churches and such. It's kind of strange to me that in this that he assigns different types of pastors, but we don't really see we don't really see a biblical foundation for this that's accurate. Now, in the final chapter, we see he says, quote, "Our rebellion hasn't been against the Ten Commandments. It is in having hearts of unbelief that God could use us to dispossess seven nations greater and mightier than us." No, actually, I would disagree with that statement because rebellion is shown in sin and rejecting God himself and rebelling against him. So that's the rebellion. It's the rebellion against God and giving over to sin and loving our sin more than we love God and refusing to repent to him and receive his son as a satisfaction for his wrath. Another thing he says of the, the final chapter, he says, quote, What have the prophets been speaking ever since the world began? Subdue the earth, have dominion over every living thing that comes and moves on the earth. This is referencing Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. He says, Until a generation rises to fulfill the original mission of subduing and dominating them, Jesus is held in the heavens. He is not coming back until someone finishes the assignment. Well, again, I would disagree with this statement for a few reasons. It was not the prophets that spoke this to us. It was God that said what he did to Adam and Eve regarding subduing dominion on the earth. And furthermore, Jesus is not subject to us. Jesus finished the assignment on the cross. He said it was finished. And Colossians chapter 3 verse 15 is another good passage to go to. So I would encourage you for time's sake to look at that. Now in closing, I mentioned to you earlier in this episode that there is a passage in scripture that refers to seven mountains. And I'm saying this in closing just to kind of give you something to think about. And I know this, this scripture was mentioned in this book in passing much earlier on, but it was not mentioned in the context that it seems to be. It was not the negative light, if I remember correctly. And if I'm miss saying that wrong, I apologize. But in Revelation chapter 17, verse 9, we see that there is a mystery explained, first of all, to John. He's having a vision. He sees a beast. He sees this woman riding on it. And this angel is explaining this, this vision to him that he saw, this mystery that he saw. And I want to read a little bit of this to you as we close out and just give you something to chew on that's from the scripture and not from 
necessarily my own my own way of thinking, but just something from the scripture. So he sees this woman on a beast. He says, one of the seven angels with the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. The kings of the earth were immoral with her and those who dwell on the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her immorality. So the angel carried him away and began to, to, to show him different things. And so in verse six, it says, I could see that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints and witnesses for Jesus. And I was utterly amazed at the sight of her. Why are you so amazed, said the angel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast that you saw, it was and now is no more, but is about to come up out of the abyss and go to its destruction. And those who dwell on the earth, whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will marvel when they see the beast that was and is not and yet will be. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, once is, and the other has yet to come. But when he does come, he must remain only for a little while. So there's a lot of <laughs> revelation. I'm not even going to touch uh, in this in this broadcast. And nobody has all the answers to revelation. And there are things in there that, that none of us understand. And I've heard some teachings on this, the Revelation chapter 17, verse 9. I even read a, a book by Dave Hunt that was written, and Dave Hunt's passed away. But I'd stumbled across this book within the past two years, and it was called the, A Woman Rides the Beast. And it talked about how he felt, he believed that the, based on the history of the Catholic Church, he goes into in there in great depth, but he believed that at the time of when he was alive, that the Catholic Church was the was the woman that was riding the beast, because the seven mountains were uh, he attributed to Rome because Rome is is built on the seven mountains. And so there are other people that believe that the, the, the apostate church, the harlot church, I should say, is the one that's riding the beast here. There's a lot of different thoughts on that. But needless to say, this is not, Revelation 17.9 is not presented in a positive light, for lack of better words. It's not presented in a, in a positive way. It's not presented in a godly way. This is someone who, whoever this is, is, has aligned herself with the beast. And as we'll see later on, as you go through there, that, that woman that rides the beast, that's drank the blood of the, the saints, the beast basically destroys her. Very startling and frightening to think that in the sense that if this is in fact related to the harlot church, the church that is not aligning with scripture and is um, not aligning with the things of God, whoever this is sitting on the seven mountains, this is something just to, just to think about, to do some study in your own time, to see what this is and to understand, yes, there are seven mountains listed and named in scripture and this is the only thing that's referenced. And there are some people that believe that, you know, the beast was Nero because in the time that John wrote this, that there was massive persecution of the Christians. And so some, depending on what people believe about Revelation, some people believe that it was attributed to that particular time. We don't have time to go into that today. And there are people that are far more educated and equipped than I am to tackle that situation and that subject. But I wanted to talk about the Seven Mountain Mandate today. I apologize. This was a much longer broadcast than normal, but I hope you find this helpful. If you have questions, feel free to message me. And if you um, want to read that book and just tackle it on yourself and test it against scripture, feel free to do that as well. But I hope again that this has been helpful to you. And I look forward to spending another time with you as we look at some topics that are current to our beliefs and we test them against scripture. 
and that we uh, learn to get in the word more and more so that we can glorify Christ in word and deed and all that we do and understand his ways better. Be blessed today. Thank you for joining me on this podcast. If you would like to connect with me, you can find me on Facebook and on Instagram at lovesickscribe. And if you enjoy reading, feel free to hop on over to lovesickscribe.com and subscribe to my blog. I've enjoyed being with you today, and I look forward to our next time together as we talk about biblical truths, current topics, and we continue to grow together in loving the Word and loving the one who is the Word, Jesus Christ. Blessings to you.